Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to have you with us. And over the past uh, few months, COVID-19 has limited us from actually having in-person conversations here on the podcast. But for some reason, the stars aligned and there's actually an ag meeting that I can attend and also the Vice President of Government Affairs with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Ethan Lane, can attend. I'm talking about the Montana Stock Growers Mid-Year Meeting. It's being held here in Billings, Montana. Uh, Ethan, uh, how are things going? Uh, welcome to Montana. Thank you. It, it, uh, we've been here for a few days. Uh, spent some time in Wyoming leading up to this. I've been out for about eight days now. Uh, and I can't tell you how nice it is to be out of Washington, D.C., first of all, out in cattle country, uh, talking to producers, uh, having some conversations, covering some ground. Uh, man, it's just nice to kind of uh, to get out on the road again and, and see some people after the, the, the time spent cooped up over the last few months. Uh, it almost feels normal uh, <laughs> to, to just be out and catching up with folks. It almost feels normal until you see the, the folks in cowboy hats and then a mask or a bandana and you really think you're like watching guns smoke back in the day yep gun smoke if gun smoke was uh, everybody having things hooked around their ears and yeah it's it's a it's definitely strange and uh you know it's funny to go into wyoming where there's no restrictions uh, and then you cross the border, and it's 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 a little tighter on this side of the border. The only thing I learned in Wyoming, I, I went down to my friend's a wedding back in June, and uh, I, I got up, I, I took my bedroll, and and uh, slept in the barn there after the dance wrapped up. And so I woke up about four thirty in the morning, I'm like, oh, I need to get back to Montana. So I get to rolling and pulling gas my pickup up and go inside and I have my uh, Yeti cup ready to go, fill it up there, go to the counter and, and the gal goes, I can't charge you for that. And I'm like, what, what's going on? And she goes, you can't use your refillable cup. It was the first time I'd been in a gas station that wasn't an ag co-op since COVID had started. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go back to Montana and not come back to Wyoming for a while. Because <laughs> that gal, she ran me out of Sheridan, Wyoming. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, uh, Ethan, as uh, as we sit here right now, I, I know you're going to have to go here in just a bit to, and uh, give an update to the Montana Stock Growers Board. Uh, today, I just think our listeners would enjoy an update on, on really a deep conversation of the policy issues that NCBA has been working on throughout COVID-19. Uh, what occurred at the summer business meeting that was down in Denver. That was an event where producers were able to come together and uh, work on policy that will be passed at the uh, upcoming annual meeting in uh, Nashville, Tennessee in February. And also, I, I want to talk more about election season. Uh, that's all we're hearing. When you turn the TV on, it's just political ads. As we record this show, the Democratic National Convention is going on. The Republican National Convention will be going on in a few weeks. There's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to what the political future may be. And I know NCBA always has uh, different plans and, uh, and ways to uh, uh, continue on with the mission of representing cattlemen and women, uh, no matter what the administration, who, who's in office or who's in power. But uh, that's what I want to kind of cover here today. But as you mentioned, you were down in Wyoming. You attended the state uh, fair in Douglas, Wyoming. Uh, also, the Public Lands Council was out there as well. Caitlin Glover, a Wyoming native, uh, was out there. What, what was it like being on the ground here uh, 
talking with producers as, I mean, grasshoppers are just eating up the country here in Montana. And I know in Wyoming and other parts, I mean, it's, it's horrible. Uh, and, you know, we are seeing a little better cattle market right now uh, as we see these uh, feeder calves start to sell and, and calves on cows and everything. We got the Superior sale and the, the Western video market sale this week. Uh, what were you hearing from Wyoming producers and, and moving up into Montana, just that boots on the ground that you had here the last few days? Well, you know, I, I think that it's it's really been an interesting year. Uh, maybe interesting isn't the word. Horrendous is probably a better word. Uh, but we've we've seemed to have found different ways in 2020 to continue to increase the degree of difficulty on everything that we do. And, and then we layer in the fact that you referenced earlier that it's an election year. And you have a lot of posturing. You have a lot of members of Congress that are uh, trying to get messages out, trying to sound proactive. And and I think for producers around the country, that that translates into a lot of mixed information, a lot of mixed messages. Uh, much like we see in the national media, where people don't know who to believe or or what's real and what's not. I think our own producers are are struggling with a little bit of that as well. And it's it's simply a case. And and you know we've. We've been talking about cattle markets almost nonstop uh, since the beginning of COVID-19. And, and, and it was not just a cattle industry story. Uh, as, as grocery stores around the country uh, were struggling to make sure they had enough product to, to uh, feed American families, it was a national conversation. And, and you know, I, I think that it has really sort of uh, I put into stark relief some of those uh, underlying issues that we were already wrestling with, things coming out of the Holcomb fire that we saw, some of that spread uh, uh, issue that that we've been wrestling with in our live cattle marketing committee. You know, if you look at some of the data that's come out of USDA, um, COVID was just dwarfed the, the the impact that we saw from the from the, the Holcomb fire. And that's led to a, a lot of discussion just across the board and across the spectrum on those issues. And, and you know, when it starts to hit producers in their pocketbook, it's hard to talk about anything else. You know, it, it, you always can tell when when the market is good. And when, and when guys are making money uh, on their cattle because they have a lot more time to be fired up about other issues. Um, when, when, when your pocketbook is being hit, there is nothing else that matters but, but keeping food on your table, keeping your operation going. And, and I think that's the biggest thing is just concern. Uh, our, our producers don't know what's coming next. You know, Not only have they weathered just one of the, the most brutal markets we've ever seen, but they're also going into an election season where they don't know if, uh, you know, the, the last four years of, of relative productivity in the, in the, envi- in the regulatory environment and is going to come to a screeching halt. Are we going to have a new administration that's going to uh, make those problems worse for them by, by layering in new environmental regulations? Are we going to be back in a situation where we're being inappropriately labeled kind of as a boogeyman, right? Whether it be from an environmental perspective from a health perspective, whatever the case may be, um, just a lot of uncertainty across the board. Um, but you're right, you know, a little bit of improvement in the price environment. We drove down to the uh, Superior sale uh, and, and watched that run uh, here earlier this week. And, and you know, it was nice to see some, some, some big numbers and some producers getting some, some decent checks for their cattle. Uh, that always makes us feel a little better than back in the spring when nobody was having any fun in this business. Um, so it's been helpful to talk to them, get their perspectives on how we handled some of the COVID-19 issues. You know, we, we took a pretty comprehensive approach to COVID back in the beginning of this thing in March when it was first declared a pandemic. We gathered our team in D.C., in the D.C. office, in the conference room, and we whiteboarded out every possible problem we could see coming from COVID, whether we're talking transportation, whether we're talking uh, federal uh, meat inspections, whether we're talking 
I, 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 you know, turnout on on Forest Service and BLM grazing permits, spring turnout. What were going to be the hiccups there? And and what did we want to put forward to the administration as kind of a consolidated list of asks, things to be paying attention to, things to address, things to be mindful of, if they wanted to ensure that we were able to continue feeding the American people. Uh, and that's kind of where we started. We laid that groundwork out. We sent a letter to the White House. Uh, we copied, you know, all of the relevant cabinet secretaries and folks on Capitol Hill so that there was a clear record of this is what this industry needs to weather this storm that we see coming. And, you know, pretty much everything that we had on that list ended up sort of coming true in spades, right? I mean, we saw that massive amount of plant closures and and, and reductions in capacity uh, uh, sweep through uh, not just our our side of the coin, but all the protein, uh, the protein commodities. And we saw those transportation issues, but having flagged those for the administration, getting the waivers in place that we're still getting extended now uh, from, from ELD and hours of service requirements, uh, you know, we kept having to build on that because, you know, you, you get the you get the administration to, to take action on that to ensure that we can get product going where it needs to go. But then you have to educate them that there's a supply chain that goes all the way back to the cow-calf operation. And every every stop on that chain has trucks that need to move and things that need to get to different places in order to be successful. And not only that, once those trucks are on the road, they need to stop and get gas. They need to stop and get coffee. They need to stop and, and uh, take a break. And so you have to have those services open as well. So it was it was a, a lot of back and forth and, and course correcting and ensuring that we're getting the right information out. Not, not to mention, obviously, the, the work we did on the CARES Act relief package and what is now the CFAP program, which is, I think, by all accounts, an imperfect tool. And the first time that we've sort of uh, pushed into that, you know, kind of government assistance arena. And that's a place I think a lot of our producers are uncomfortable with. It's it's sort of at our core. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you that because you, you look at the funding only, you know, as of last week, $7 billion yeah. has been actually allocated to producers. And a, a large chunk of that $16 billion of the uh, first round of CFAP you know, it actually goes towards livestock. And as you said, this is really the first time that there has been assistance for livestock producers. And I know people, there's people in my family, I don't know if they're opposed to it, but they've never gone through the process of actually right. going into those FSA offices and applying for these uh, assistance funds or relief funds or w whatever you would like to label it. Um, I, I think that's, uh, I, I know my main job as a farm broadcaster, I talk about you know, go get enrolled in CFAP today. I, I, I had to remind my dad the other day and he mm -hmm. goes, I've just been so busy. And, and he goes, I, I, I need to get in there and do that. Yep. Uh, but I know you need to make your appointment with FSA, depending on, on where you're at. Uh, but let's talk about, you know, since we're on that CFAP uh, conversation, what's it looking like for a round two of CFAP? I, I know Congress is on break right now, and the main focus is the U.S. Postal Service uh, right now in the political headlines and in the media. But what does that CFAP round two look like, especially when there's still money from the original CFAP? What, what? Well, that, that's that's exactly the, where we are in this in this discussion, right? We're talking about round two on Capitol Hill. We've been talking about round two, and and we know more is needed. But clearly, if seven billion of the sixteen billion in the first round has been handed out, and they've continued to expand the list of commodities and specialty crops that can be included. You have a you have some sort of an issue there 
because we should have been out of money in that program by now. We know what the need was, right? Our industry alone, 13 billion in damages by our economists estimate. I think what we heard from USDA is that right out of the gate, they had aid requests of up to $40 billion on that money. So the fact that we've only pushed seven out the door says that some of those initial concerns we had with the payment limits, even with the ability to diversify to different family members and some of those things, which by the way, is also new business for the cattle industry. A lot of these other commodities have long ago structured their operations to maximize their ability to interact with those programs. It's the best kind of charitable way I can describe that. Um, but you know, in the cattle industry, we've never had to do that. So all of a sudden, you know, our, our guys are looking around and saying, man, I, you know, this is new, this is new territory for me. I think some of them have had some success getting that stuff put together, but that April 15th date that was put in that original breakout between the part one payments on, on demonstrated losses and the part two uh, kind of inventory payments has really been a challenge. We had a lot of stalkers and backgrounders that held cattle through the, the thick of that crisis thinking, you know, maybe conditions will get better. Well, they were sort of double penalized for that if they had sold those cattle back when the market was really bad at the beginning of April or end of March, they would have they would have received a, a far greater compensation for for those those bad market conditions. And you know, we're working on some of that. We feel like USDA has a lot of work left to do to get that original sixteen billion out the door and into producer hands. Because remember, nine point five billion direct appropriation plus fourteen billion to the Commodity Credit Corporation. So by my math, there is a lot of money left there. We should be able to plus those part two payments up and get a much bigger check out the door to producers. We should be able to get another round coming out of Capitol Hill so that we can target some of those additional losses for producers that, that you know really took a big hit and hit a payment limit cap. There's some things we should be able to do here in the next month or two uh, working with Congress and USDA if only we work with the money that's already in the bank. And, and that's a frustrating uh, issue on CFAP, in, in my opinion, and even with my small herd that's a part of uh, our family's operations, is that January 15th through April 15th period, I'm not going to be impacted by COVID till I market calves. Right. And uh, we, we still haven't uh, contracted our calves uh, from our operation yet here this year. And that, that's in the back of my head. I'm just like, that, that doesn't make sense. I, I know there is the, the $33 ahead for a cow and for a calf that was just on the ground already in between those two dates. Yep. So, Ethan, I've got a lot of questions uh, from, from my friends and people just messaging me on Facebook saying, well, can USDA extend that April 15th period in the first CFAP or is that going to be in the second round to make it a whole year? So I'm, so there, there's a few different ways they can tackle that, right? And, and I'll just be really honest about, about I think, the math that they're doing and, and the Capitol Hill is doing too. There's no question, I think by everybody's account, they, they missed the mark on that April 15th date. You could make the argument that you probably started it a little early at January 15th, although I know we've got people calling us saying, hey, I sold, sold cattle on January 13th. Well, you know, did we really start to see market impacts from, from uh, coronavirus in mid-January or was it a little later? Could we have adjusted those dates a little bit? And by we, I guess I mean USDA, but you know, we, we know that April 15th date was pretty arbitrary, but now where do you move it? Because it, it, it politically for both the Hill and USDA, if they extend that deadline out to sometime in the summer or to today, people who sell cattle tomorrow are going to be grumpy that they didn't get in on that program. The other part of that is those part two payments, those inventory payments, kind of give them a little bit of cover if they can work. And this is just me kind of making this suggestion. If they can work to plus up those part two payments 
that's a much easier process. It's a cleaner process. Uh, and it gives them the ability to use some of those uh, CCC funds, you know, for a, for a market market uh, based payment. And, and it gives them access to a much bigger group of producers so that you have those folks that aren't going to market their calves until in the fall, not feeling like they've been cut out of this process again. Because, you know, our damage estimates showed that the cow-calf sector in the long scope of this thing is going to take the biggest hit if we don't mitigate that loss. And, and the, 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 the number that was in our estimate to really mitigate that loss was 111 bucks. If you don't mitigate it with that kind of number in, in this first year, it escalates into year two. It's a compounded uh, escalating loss. So at 33 bucks a head, we're, 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 not, we're not where we need to be on that. And, and so that's got to be kind of part of the focus there is how do you make sure you get the money out to the people who need it? And then let's work on getting some additional money through the door to ensure that those producers that just were hammered back in March, back in April, May, and took those huge losses are getting everything we can get to them uh, to offset those. You know, there, there's no reason we can't go around now that we've now that we've tapped into this deal. You know, we're kind of we're kind of in it for the duration. So uh, we 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 need to go ahead and try to get as much as we can for producers. Make sure that that everybody's getting getting something to 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 get them through this, um, and then and then see where we're at as far as the the the, the health of our producers. Uh, the economic health of our producers coming out of the other side of this. It is good to see those prices increase. That uh, That's a positive step. But you can't look past the, the just the horrendous damage that our industry sustained back in the spring. Well, and then you look at the backlog uh, of cattle in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the packing plants. And, you know, Ethan, a question that I have, a lot of mainstream media likes to market that, uh, that the workers in these facilities caught it in the plants. Uh, you know, you'd hear that, no, they, they caught it actually outside. What, what are you hearing from officials in these states where there is large uh, processing uh, capacity and how that impacted the backlog there too? And then obviously trying to get people back in there because we all know it, it just, it broke the market for a lot of It did. Any of us who have toured a packing facility know that that is an incredibly clean environment. I mean, it's designed to prevent any kind of, you know, issues like that pathogens from getting into the, the product. I mean, you walk through layers of foam on your on your boots and you scrub in and you do all these things to access that environment. And, and you know, from, from our understanding, the, the, the measures that the packing sector took during COVID-19 to comply with the CDC guidance and in many cases exceed it in order to protect those workers, um, really did uh, go above and beyond to try to keep those workers safe. So where we saw those outbreaks, it is hard to ignore the idea that the one place you can't protect those workers is when they're not at work. And and so that's been a struggle. You know, I think there's been some political backlash that we all saw from that. Um, even the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, I, I, uh, Secretary Azar, made some comments that, that he took some heat for sort of alluding to that but it, you know the, the reality is there probably is some truth to the fact that uh, it's and it's not anything other than just the fact that they're operating in a very clean highly controlled environment so it's 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 highly unlikely that that's where they were contracting this illness um but you know luckily even as we've seen this return in in different areas and spikes in different areas we're not seeing a return of those issues in the plants and that's been that's been nice because I think back in the spring when we were watching this first round, that was kind of the real nightmare scenario that we were talking about was, man, what if we get a second wave and we're, we're going into the fall and worried again about these plants shutting back down? 
you know, thankfully sitting here today, that has not been something we've seen come up. And I think that speaks to the fact that the Packers have kind of figured out their deal and, and how to manage it, uh, uh, you know, in, in their individual operations. And, you know, bringing up the Packers, there's a lot of producers in the countryside very frustrated um, and very angry with the Packers. Yeah, frustrated is not the word I would use. Well, you know, but I'm just there's a lot of anger there's a lot of anxiety uh, we saw the backlog we saw the shutdowns we saw the record box beef uh, prices along the way and, and yeah those have come down off of those record highs we are getting more cattle uh, processed through there but you know we, we we did finally see part and i say part of that usda report that did the investigation into the whole com- plant fire which we're coming up on a year here finally right. uh, and then obviously the uh the COVID-19 impact on the markets and the involvement from the Packers was included in that um but again there's a lot of folks out there they they, they read that report and the report says yes these both had an impact on the market but there's still an investigation ongoing. DOJ is still doing an investigation. Can you share more on what's going on and, and what happens if they find uh, a Packer or officials uh, guilty? Like what, what happens and what, what does NCBA do? Um, obviously, they support whatever that finding is from the DOJ or USDA. Sure. And, and you know, we've been at the forefront of, of requesting that, that, that USDA look into those, those issues and refer anything that needs to be referred to DOJ. Uh, to your point, it certainly sounds like DOJ has taken that ball and run with it. You know, we're getting those reports. We, we know that that's ongoing. Um, you know, people need to remember that a DOJ investigation is every bit an investigation, no, no different than any other criminal investigation. And that means they don't talk about it while they're doing it. You know, they're not putting out a bulletin every week and saying, here are the people we interviewed and here's what we found. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're down in their, in their deal uh, trying to figure out what's there. For our purposes, you know, the, the, the report that we saw from, from USDA, from Undersecretary Ibaugh, I, I think was a helpful update on, on their process. But, you know, they've tried to be clear that they're not done here yet. This is, this is kind of here's what we have found to date. Here's the information that sort of informs all the market conditions we've seen, which I, I know me and my staff have found very helpful to have that sort of continuous record of an analysis of market conditions leading up to the Holcomb fire, what we saw in the markets in the days after, you know, that that lag in information about how the Packers dealt with that with that loss of capacity and spread it out to other plants. Well, now we know, looking back on it, that there was very little loss in capacity, in actual capacity in, in those those days leading after, but but the futures market just took off like a shot, right? And and that impacted the cash market. And you had this this downward impact, even though we very quickly realized in a few days that there wasn't nearly the the actual impact as we thought. Um, and then we see the COVID situation just dwarf the Holcomb fire. And and those conditions, you know, almost looked quaint by comparison. Um, going into the spring, and that's prompted uh, so much of the conversation we've had about markets, so much of the conversation about price discovery, and how do we make sure that our producers aren't getting the short end of the stick in those transactions while they're seeing these massive box beef profits and they're seeing these massive prices uh, for our product, not to mention unprecedented demand. You know, it's, 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 incredibly, it's an incredibly hard pill to swallow for a cattle producer that has worked hard to produce the best cattle in the world um, only to take a fraction of what they're worth at the sale barn and watch consumers pay three times as much as they're used to paying and ask for more. That's a, that, that is an incredibly frustrating situation. And, and that is exactly what we've been focusing on is trying to figure out how you remedy some of that. How do you do it without distorting the market? Because 
you know, you, you always want to look past the, the issue that you're currently being faced with and, and think about the fact that that pendulum swings both ways, right? And, and you want to make sure you still have that free market in place when the pendulum swings back the other direction, which it all, I mean, every market cycles. And, and create a situation where we're, we're updating the way we do that, we're updating the way we process that information, and that we're really, truly getting down to uh, what those cattle are worth at any given time. And, and that group and, and others in the industry have explored all kinds of options to achieve that. You know, they've looked at maybe we need to start looking at, a, at something tied to, to box beef. Maybe we start, need to start looking at an instrument like that. We need to start looking at more regionalized assessments of, of what's needed for, for robust price discovery. That's kind of the, the real takeaway from our efforts and the policy that we came out of Denver with uh, a few weeks ago is is a focus on that, that regional price discovery. And that was going to be my next question there for you. Uh, obviously, the, the live cattle marketing uh, committee, uh, I was getting texts from people uh, during that, that whole day, and I, I truly wish I would have been at that, at that meeting. Um, because it wasn't just an hour long discussion, <laughs> this, but it was a full day of discussions of states bringing their own policy and their own solutions. But I, I, I have friends and even myself when I, when I read the policy itself, I, I think that my favorite comment I read on there is I'm a rancher. What does this what, explain this to me in ranchers terms? You know what the actual policy means right. to them a uh, point by point, but can you walk us through the 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 uh, the overall decision that the state associations that make up the NCBA what they came to when it comes to this price discovery on the cash basis? So I, I think you had a seven-hour committee meeting or six and a half-hour committee meeting uh, because it's clear that we have a lot of different perspectives on how to accomplish this goal of of getting real robust price discovery. You know, one of the benefits of the last eight months has been the fact that Dr. Stephen Koontz in Colorado, Colorado State University, has for several years now been doing research into those markets and trying to determine what those levels of negotiated trade need to be in order to give us the kind of price discovery that we need to inform those those formula contracts and, and, and grid contracts that producers have really embraced. You know, and that's something that um, is is really regional. You know, you got your producers in Iowa that are selling about half their cattle on cash. And they're not engaging with those tools to the same level that our producers in Kansas are or our producers in Texas are. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of tug and 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 pull there between those two areas of the of the country and how they do their business and and how they're arriving at premiums for quality cattle and how we're determining where that starting number is for those for those contracts that has been at the at the core of the debate between these different groups and what we saw in denver was you have some of these key states and you have a bunch of other states that are that are involved in this that have producers that have, have sort of started paying more attention to the live cattle markets than they maybe have in the past you know especially if they're cow calf producers that now are saying how does this impact me and and how are you going to fix this so that this is not rolling downhill and impacting my prices the policy that was arrived at finally really is a true compromise policy because you know you've had a lot of progress in the last four or five months in those areas with lower amounts of negotiated trade moving the needle on that they've they've been generating more and it is a two-sided equation you know i i think there's been a, a little bit of an over focus on gosh the packers need to buy more cattle negotiated sure but that means our producers need to sell cattle negotiated as well. And, and many of them, 
like using those AMAs, those alternative marketing arrangements. They, they like the premiums they get. Um, everyone in the value chain likes the increase in quality that it generates. But we need the other side of that too. We need those cash transactions, those negotiated, true negotiated transactions in order to inform the prices on that. So how do you, how do you incentivize real robust price discovery in a way that's not the government saying you will buy cattle here versus here, you will do it in this manner versus this manner. How do we maintain an environment where it's producers that are choosing how they want to interact with that market? That's been, that's the focus of this. The, the policy that came out of Denver gives us a path forward to start achieving that. It memorializes some of the things we've talked about with Dr. Kuntz's research on, on regional price discovery. It creates a sub working group that is already uh, hard at work looking at establishing some triggers by region. And it creates a little bit of room for that improvement, that voluntary improvement in negotiated trade to continue. You know, those areas where, they're, where they need to make more negotiated trades are moving the needle on that, as I said. And this gives it a little more time for that to happen, but we continue to do work on the rest of it while that's happening, right? Rather than just kind of spinning our wheels on the same discussion over and over again, um, we're gonna start to set those triggers. We've retained uh, some of the best ag economists in the country to help us with that. That policy calls for NCBA funded and directed research. We've already uh, we've already engaged those those researchers to give us that data so that that group has the very best and latest information. And then they're gonna emerge with that product so that we can start talking about where we're at. And, and, you know, the key part of this policy for a lot of the groups that came into the discussion advocating for 5014 or some kind of mandate um, for, for, for negotiated trade, the key part of that is once those triggers are established, once we have that, that sort of benchmark to, to, by which to, to judge performance in these different regions, if we're not meeting those, those benchmarks in those regions, then NCBA needs to escalate this, this issue and start engaging Capitol Hill, start engaging USDA in finding some regulatory and legislative solutions. Those solutions will, per our policy, continue to be informed by NCBA-funded and directed research. Well, that research tells us right now that a blanket mandate doesn't work, right? But that research does tell us we need more negotiated trade, and everybody in the room agrees with that. No matter where you are on the spectrum, I think it's fair to say everyone in that room agrees that we need more. And we need it in key areas. We need it in Texas. We need it in Kansas. We need it in some of those areas that, that have a lot of use of those AMAs. And, and so this is going to give us a, a little more of a framework to not just do that, but also engage with forces outside of our control that are working on this as well. Undersecretary Ibaugh's report made it clear that USDA is looking at some mechanisms to, to make sure that this happens. The Hill certainly has been. Senator Grassley's 5014 bill has been sort of the, the most discussed option. Um, there have been some senators that have signed on, but I mean, I can tell you, I think a lot of them are sort of uh, wary of that idea. Uh, we've seen a lot of Western cow-calf states that otherwise would probably be inclined to be on that side of this equation that are hesitant because they deal with a little bit more federal uh, intervention in, in their business than they'd like already, right? And it's a different, it's a different view of this if you're a, if you're a cow-calf producer in Nevada than than if you are. Um, you know, a, a farmer feeder in Iowa, you, your, your involvement with the federal government is very different. Um, and I think that that, that is a, a part of what they are, are going to be looking at here. So we're hopeful that we're going to get, uh, we're going to get a product here in the next few weeks. That's going to give us a path forward on that. Once we have that product, 
Uh, once we have those triggers established, uh, that working group will continue to meet. It's, it's been reauthorized through our process. So I expect that this is an issue we'll continue talking about. And it's happening, Lane, um, at a time when we're um, hoping that they're going to reauthorize livestock mandatory reporting by the end of September. And that's a key part of this as well. Um, you know, there are very few days left in the legislative calendar. Uh, there's a lot of work left to do. Uh, and so a lot of our focus right now is how do we keep Congress's feet to the fire to make sure they do the business they need to and not leave us um, with, with some of these things expiring before they go home to, 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 to get reelected. Now, I am watching the clock on this because I do know you have to get going here in just a little bit to, to go meet with the Montana Stock Growers Board. But uh, I, I do want to ask about uh, uh, some just talk about local processors. And then I want to jump into quickly that election uh, cycle conversation. But, you know, uh, th there's been a very big push. And, and I, I say it every time I talk about the topic. I think there's nothing more American than seeing a butcher shop or two or three butcher shops on Main Street. Yep. Um, it, it shows that the, and, and when those butcher shops are getting beef or pork or lamb, whatever they're going to be, that is local as well. Mm -hmm. Because we know like Walmarts and so many of the, uh, these other places that just, you know, they bring in their box beef and they cut it and put it out in their window. And, uh, you know, I see like my friend Jake Fettis, um, who is an NCBA member. And, yep. and we're going to do a show here in a few weeks, but they... I saw the the local meat shop in in their hometown where they had all their meat processed and and that place was just as backed up come up for sale and they're like you know what we're gonna buy that and have our own beef brand but still continue to service uh, customers that have beefs that are ready to get uh, processed I, I I really commend anyone that's wanting to get into this market but what what is NCBA doing really to to help maybe with regulations uh, on the state and and obviously on the national level will be NCBA's uh, cup of tea but you know let's talk about the, this this movement. And the local foods movement has been around for a long time, but I just love that cow-calf producers are now getting involved in it. They are, and what Jake is doing is really cool. I follow his new deal on Instagram, and I'm excited to see him him getting into that. And and you know where we have put our focus uh, in the in the processing capacity arena is in empowering our producers to innovate and empowering our producers to get into that business if they want to, and making sure we have the resources available for them to compete. Because it, it's a difficult process, right? It's an onerous process, especially if you're going to be engaged at the USDA inspection level. Uh, uh, you know, we have, I think, 27 states that have state meat inspection programs. The, the, the model that exists for allowing those uh, 27 states to engage in a system that allows them to use state inspection, but still produce product that can be shipped across state lines and really get into the into the stream of commerce is that CIS uh, system. That's the uh, uh, Cooperative Interstate Shipment Program. And of the 27 states that have federal uh, or state meat inspection programs, only seven are using the CIS system. Well, that tells us there's something wrong with the CIS system, right? It, 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 there's something there that's 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 making states weary of getting involved with it. Um, so we're we're looking at that. We're looking at, at what we need to fix there to make that more attractive, to empower those states to give that tool to their producers in their state. We're also uh, working on several pieces of legislation that will uh, provide more resources for for producers to uh, to get into that business or for small packers to grow. Uh, one of them is the Ramp Up Act. Uh, which provides some grants for for uh, getting integrated into that federal system if if a packer so chooses. Uh, another is the Direct Act, 
the Direct Act actually uh, solves one of the issues with this with this set of uh, of, of questions, and that is a state inspected product um, that gets sold across state lines. Um, if you have in the, uh, you know, let's hope it never happens, but adulterated product that goes across state lines, there's no recall authority, right, from the from the neighboring state. So needing to solve that issue um, has been something that we've paid a lot of attention to. The Direct Act would allow uh, a route to do that by selling through e-commerce, which, as you know, uh, there are a lot of these cow-calf guys that have been, become really adept at marketing their ranch on social media and, and reaching consumers that otherwise would have no idea, right, that they're growing this incredible product. And, and now, sitting in my house in, in Alexandria, Virginia, I can order beef from somebody in another part of the country and have, them, have it shipped to me. And, and so creating some opportunities there as well for those producers to do that through state inspection, because with that e-commerce link, you've got that traceback authority ability, right? You have that, that record. Um, so looking for some opportunities there to help out. And we're getting calls, Lane, from producers and from, from folks all around the country. I'm talking to people in Louisiana, in Wyoming. We toured a small processor in Buffalo uh, last week, and, and uh, in Buffalo, Wyoming, and, and uh, talked to him about, he's, he's been in business four years. Um, and he's, he has a pretty diverse business. And we were talking to him about, gosh, what does it take for you to move to the next level? Well, what we're hearing everywhere is labor is the biggest concern for, for everyone in that business, big and small. Um, and that's an issue that we're going to have to pay attention to as well. It's no different than anywhere else in ag where um, a lot of these jobs are, are not jobs that, that Americans seem to be attracted to. So how do we so how do we fix some of those issues? But that's that's really where our focus has been is let's create a suite of tools to make this easier for our producers to innovate and add value to their product rather than feeling like once it once it leaves their gates, it's kind of out of their control and, and they're at the mercy of everybody else in the value chain. And for our friends that are tuning in, if this is your first time, uh, there's two great podcasts on the Cattleman's Call series. One's called Main Street Butcher, a great podcast with our friend Lindsay Fulton, Lindsay Loken Fulton, excuse me, uh, talking about her work just being a small Main Street Butcher shop and the impact COVID had on her, but also just her career as a woman butcher, uh, first off. It's a great show. And then also uh, a show called Beef Direct to Consumers. It's three young producers. Uh, from the Midwest and the South and the Southeast discussing their uh, uh, direct-to-consumer models. Uh, so very, very great conversations from producers. I'd encourage you to go listen to those shows. Uh, but, but Ethan, as we continue on here, I, I want to I get the election uh, topic of our conversation in here today. Uh, it's, uh, as I mentioned, the Democratic National uh, Convention is underway right now. The Republican will be in just a few weeks. Um, and I always joke about you and I were actually together the night of the 2016 election. Yes, we were. That the night President Trump was elected. And uh, everyone uh, that's in D.C. that is in, in uh, advocacy and in lobbying like NCBA, uh, you know, that, that, that Congress is going to change hands. You never know when that's going to happen. Um, and obviously folks are very very interested in what's going to happen here this fall. We don't know. And I don't believe you can, you can't trust the polls. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, all views are my own, I guess on that statement, <laughs> but what, what are we hearing out in DC and what is the, uh, the leadership of NCBA looking at just being ready for anything, but, uh, what should folks what should folks be watching and what are what are your thoughts on on the 2020 election special on the pre presidential side but also on that US Senate as well sure 
this is a really odd environment. Obviously, COVID has has added a layer uh, to this election cycle that nobody was expecting. Um, you're right. The polls are, are not something to be trusted. They weren't accurate in the 2016 election. Uh, they weren't very accurate in the 2018 midterm elections. And there's no reason to believe they've improved very much since then. We do know that some of the internals that the Trump campaign was running in 2016 were about as accurate as anything out there. Um, we do know that there, there are some combinations that are helping them to determine um, you know, where their bases of support are, and hopefully they're utilizing that information in a way that, that makes sense. We obviously um, are, are, are you know, in a position where we need to work with whoever comes through the door um, and whatever Congress uh, decides to, to give us. So we want to make sure we're educating everybody. But we do get involved. You know, we have a very active political action committee. Um, we spend a lot of time this time of year, I do in particular, um, in meetings with candidates, in meetings with, uh, with elected officials that are running for re-election. And, and, you know, what I'm hearing across the board is in, uh, in Republican districts, uh, that, that have engaged with the White House and engaged with the president, the president's coattails are proving to be pretty durable. Where he has waded into some of these uh, uh, congressional primaries, uh, his voters have shown up. Um, in, in some cases, even uh, in races where there's a candidate who's you know locally very well liked and endorsed. I mean, Texas 13 is a great example of that. Uh, Josh Weingarner, you know, from uh, he's he's from our our universe, is a friend of a lot of ours. Um, uh, ran an incredibly strong campaign and was the front runner by a mile in that race. The president's personal physician, Ronnie Jackson, was in that race as well. The president engaged in that race and and voiced his opinion um, and really came out strong for for Ronnie. And and the voters of Texas 13 listened to the president. I mean, there, there's just, I wish I could tell you there was more nuance to it than that. But, you know, we saw the same thing in Alabama with Tommy Tuberville running for, uh, uh, for Senate down there against uh, uh, the former senator, um, Jeff Sessions. So it really shows us that uh, despite all the things we hear about, gosh, the president has alienated everybody in the world. And I mean, his, his people are still there for him. And the question is, will they be there for him in those battleground states? Will they show up in Florida? Will they show up in Michigan? Will they show up in Ohio? Will they show up in those states that, I mean, we have 50 states, but at the end of the day, if you work in my business, it always still comes down to about the same five, right, that are in play and that tend to kind of call call the election one way or another. And is he going to be able to compete in those states? And how is that competition going to help or hurt those down-ballot races? The Senate races are, are a whole different deal, particularly these Western Senate races. You know, Senator Daines, Senator Gardner in Colorado, I, I, um, I, Senator McSally in Arizona, they're running for their lives right now, their political lives. And it, that, that, I think, is almost going to take on its own oxygen, certainly in Montana. I've heard an earful from both sides, uh, you know, since I've, since I've been here. A lot of people have opinions. Um, Senator Daines has taken some, um, some strategic steps that I think he feels like he needs to engage the environmental community and the sportsman's community. Um, you know, he did so in a way that didn't make the landowner community or our community very happy. The LWCF permanent reauthorization is not popular um, with landowners, um, and, and rightfully so. But, you know, these, these, these candidates are trying to do what they can uh, to reach some of those voters in what we see are rapidly changing demographics in some of these Western states. Um, and we're going to field test some of that in this, in this cycle. We're going we're gonna to see if that model will work. And if it doesn't, we're going to probably have to do some, some recalibration about uh, and look at what, it, what a, you know, a, a conservative uh, uh, property rights focused 
elected representative looks like in 2020 that can appeal to urban voters, that can appeal to suburban voters, that can appeal to folks who go to the grocery store and buy their meat, but don't have any other understanding of how it gets there. Well, it's going to be a very interesting few months uh, as we count down to the 2020 election. I work in media, but I cannot stand the commercials. <laughs> That's why uh, on Russell Limits and I's radio show, we do not take political money on our ads because we don't want our listeners to have to listen to political ads 24-7. Sure. And we want our little radio stations to get some money from those campaigns. Absolutely. But uh, oh, I tell you what, I, I, it's going to be so interesting to find a vaccine for COVID-19 and, and we can get back to some type of new normal, whatever that's going to be. Yeah, but it, it, and, 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 and we will. And I think we already are in some areas. You know, I, I kind of try to be an optimist. I kind of I get paid to be a pessimist. So I try to look for opportunities to be an optimist. Uh, and and if, if nothing else, the families around the country have spent the last six months grilling out. They've spent the last six months cooking at home, cooking burgers together, cooking steaks. Um, there, there has been, I think, and I've heard this from a lot of people, as, as, as stressful as this has been on everybody and, and no doubt on the economy. Uh, you know, maybe the bright spot here is that we're remembering how nice it is to spend time with family and, and to do those things. And, and certainly, I mean, the explosion of people cooking different cuts of beef, maybe because they, they didn't have access to anything else for a little while or they found something they hadn't seen before. I think there's a lot of opportunity there as well. Um, so, you know, you kind of try to look at some of those bright spots and maybe coming out of the backside of this thing as people return to normal, they have found some, some, some kind of family time and some activities, that maybe even some surrounding cooking our product that they that they forgot how much they enjoy and 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 maybe that's some of the, you know what we can take as a positive out of this and build on coming out of the backside of this well ethan thank you so much i know our listeners will appreciate uh, just uh, your insight and, and the conversation we had today on so many complex uh, issues impacting the industry and all of our lives uh, so again our friends thanks for joining us here today again ethan lane is the vice president of government affairs for the national cattlemen's beef association in the dc office he joined me here in billings montana at the montana stock growers association's mid-year meeting ethan thanks for joining us here today always great to be with you lane thank you all righty well friends thanks for joining us here on the cattlemen's call i'm lane nordland we'll catch you next time thanks for tuning in to ncba's cattlemen's call podcast with lane nordland for more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.